Today, we are kind of picking up where we left off last week. Last week's sermon got to page 12, 13, 14, and we decided we wouldn't subject you to all of that in one week. So here we have the conclusion of that sermon, which um, I will warn you, I'm going to talk pretty fast to try to keep it under 30 minutes. It's going to be okay. Um, There's plenty of slides that you can look at to go along with this sermon, and uh, this is an issue that we can't just hop on for three minutes and then assume that you know what we're talking about, right? So... Uh, Last week, we looked at Luke chapter 4. We looked at the temptation of Jesus Christ, and we looked at each of those temptations. Jesus replied with Scripture, right? So we see the importance. Jesus knew the Scriptures. He knew God's Word. He knew the Old Testament at that time. That's what they had. And he modeled to his believers, his followers, what it looks like when you respond to the trials and temptations of this world with God's Word. He modeled that for them. God's word is how Jesus responded, and it's how we are able to respond too. That was one of the big points we talked about last week. And then we touched briefly last week on what we're digging into today. In the third temptation, remember, the devil is tempting Jesus to throw himself off the temple so that angels will come and save him, right? And the devil quotes word for word Psalm 91, 11 through 12. We went through that. It was verbatim. It was exactly what we saw in Psalm 91. And the devil tries to twist that scripture and the intent of that scripture to kind of coerce Jesus into doing something that was outside of God's will for his life. And so our topic today, uh, the resurrected church stands on the word. It's the same topic we had last week. We're digging deeper. Uh, We need to be aware, though, of how the world and the enemy often uh, twists scriptures to meet their own agenda, their own message, their own ideas, things like that. And and, and I would say that probably at some point in our lives, we've been in that boat, right? We've maybe used a verse or a scripture um, out of context. We've, we've maybe applied it to this area of our life when it had nothing to do with that. And so this isn't an exercise of pointing you out and saying you're wrong. Um, I just think we all need to be aware of what God's word says so that we will know when we come across something in life that is not consistent with God's word or that is misusing God's word. So as a reminder here, as a reminder, and this is important, Our enemy is the devil and the sin and the evil. That's our enemy. Our enemy is not the people that get caught up into it. That's our mission field. That's who Jesus wants us to love and serve and get to know and bless in the name of Jesus Christ. The gospel is for those who are caught up in the evil and for those who believe twisted things about God and the world. That's who the gospel is for. And so our battle today here is against the devil, sin, and evil, not against people. And so Ephesians 6 tells us, you've probably heard this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So the battle that we fight is the body of Christ. We're not to go out and steamroll other people that God made and loves and wants to know the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are to go out and love them, and by doing so, we will steamroll the evil, the devil, and the sin that thus is keeping us back and holding us down in this world. So the twisting of scriptures, the twisting of scriptures is something that we need to be especially mindful of today because we live in an echo chamber culture. Have you heard that phrase, an echo chamber? Uh, let, me, let me describe what that is. Typically, we choose, often subconsciously, to get our ideas and our news and our wisdom and our information from places that reinforce what we already think or feel to be true. Does that make sense? So we are going to naturally and sometimes intentionally seek out those sources that confirm what we already think or believe. It's called confirmation bias, right? 
And so let me give you an example of this. Uh, take my Facebook feed, for example. Most of us here are on Facebook, and some of you are watching on Facebook right now. Hello. Thanks for being with us today. Uh, my Facebook news feed, uh, I have intentionally, aggressively removed all of the stuff that makes me upset or incredulous, and I've done it on purpose because I don't have time. I don't have time to feel that way when I want to get on and see how somebody's weekend went or how my friends are doing with their kids. I don't have time to have someone's poor theology or their demonic worldview popping up on my uh, newsfeed and getting my skin crawling and my blood boiling, right? Like, I've chosen to take that as, as a distraction out of my normal day. I've chosen to take that out of there. So naturally, what I do see on my Facebook feed is already going to confirm, and it's already going to bless the things that I already think uh, and know to be true or want to be true, and I need to be aware of that. So what I do is often I will intentionally, on my own terms, I will go survey other news sources and other uh, different leanings, and I will do so on my terms uh, so that I won't just be relying on what the Facebook algorithm serves up to me, right? So an echo chamber, sometimes we build it on purpose, sometimes we build it subconsciously or on accident. And so I say all that to say this, um, how we view the scriptures often somehow gets filtered or subjected to our echo chambers. And so in our world today, we need to be asking ourselves two questions as we see the scriptures being used around us and in our culture. Two questions. The first is this, is this coming from my echo chamber, or, or maybe am I interpreting it through the filter of my echo chamber? That's one question we can ask. And then the second question we can ask is this. We often need to ask ourselves if this scripture has been misquoted, twisted, or misapplied to serve the purposes of the person or the group using that scripture. And I think this, this, this happens very often in our world today. And so we're going to talk about a few different examples. Uh, two of them we've kind of touched on briefly, we'll look at again, and then three specific examples that we see kind of playing out in our world today. And this is a bottomless pit, right? As long as there have been scriptures, people have been misusing and abusing them, right? So our goal today is to become more aware of it so that we might be more inspired to know God's word and God's truth so that we will know, so that we will know when something comes to us that is not of God. So first... Uh, Luke chapter 4, right? Luke chapter 4, we looked at in depth last week. Satan quotes Psalm 91 passage word for word. He does so out of the context of the passage and in a way that is inconsistent with God's heart and with God's word. And the enemy can use scripture verbatim. We talked about that, right? The enemy knows God's word and will look for opportunities to twist it and use it against us because that's what the deceiver does. Now, the Bible as a whole... The Bible as a whole is a gift to be treasured, right? This whole thing. And it is so important for us to know more than just a couple verses. We might have favorite verses, that, that's great. We might have favorite books. We might have favorite sections. We might have 100 memorized verses. But it's important that we keep knowing it. It's important that we keep digesting it and keep learning it so that we know when the enemy tries to misuse that against us, as in Luke chapter 4. Now, the second scripture example we see, uh, it is apparent that the enemy twists scripture in Genesis chapter 3. If you remember back uh, this spring, we had the series, The Old, The New, and You, and we looked at the fall. What happened when humanity fell into sin? And so we're not going to hit this really in depth today because we did it then, but just to give you a reminder, Genesis chapter 3, 
uh, the enemy presumes, the serpent presumes and makes it out like God said one thing when he actually said something else. And here's what happened. Genesis 3.1, the serpent says to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Did God really say that? It's as if to say, is it true that God is as stingy as I've heard that he is? How many of you have had conversations that have started like that before? Or somebody comes up to you wanting to stir things up and they're like, did you hear, did you hear what, I, what I think this person did last weekend, right? Like, it, it's almost gossipy. It, it almost stirs up something. It, it has a negative tend to it. And Eve responds. She says, we may, eat from the, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And again, this seems right. Eve heard what God said to them in chapter 2, but she added something. What did she add? You must not touch it. She added that part. God didn't tell her that he couldn't touch the tree. God told her uh, that she couldn't eat from the tree, that her and Adam couldn't eat from that tree. And so she has already added something to God's word, God's instructions, uh, and she's already seeming to, to buy into the deception that God is somehow harsh or holding out on them, right? Right? How many people have you met in the world today that seem to have this view? If they really follow God, he's going to hold back all the good stuff that they enjoy in life. It's one of the biggest lies that the enemy uses, I think, to keep people away from Jesus, away from Christianity. So in that moment, as soon as she adds something to God's instructions and makes him out to be even more harsh and cruel than what he actually was in the eyes of the serpent, that's when the serpent takes issue with the death that God said they were going to have and paints, paints a picture of God to be withholding something good rather than protecting them from something devastating and evil. And so the enemy uses a twisted form of God's instructions and God's words to twist Eve's view and Adam's view of God's heart and God's provision for them. And what ends up getting twisted is their own view of God and their own trust and their own faith in God's provision and God's ability to follow through on his promises and what he said he was going to do. And this sort of thing happens frequently in our world today as well. Because the enemy wants us to believe that God's holding out on us as well. He wants us to take an adversarial approach to our relationship with God rather than one of humility and grace. Let's move on. So there's three specific examples now I want to look at. Um, the first one is a doctrine example. Uh, a doctrine example. So uh, as you might have heard in 1 John chapter 3 today, if you were to take a few verses out of there and run with it uh, and not look at the rest of the chapter or the rest of John's writings, you might come to this conclusion. True Christians do not sin. Now, fortunately, many of you grew up in the Lutheran church. Uh, that's not one of the things that we teach in the catechism, right? True Christians do not sin. In fact, we are painfully aware of our inability to perfectly follow God. And there's this thing called grace that we love. God's forgiveness lavished on us again and again and again, even when we have these sin struggles in our lives. So we're going to look at this doctrine and how people might be led to believe this doctrine if they believe an incomplete or twisted view of Scripture. So 1 John 3, 6 through 10, we heard this earlier. It says, No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. So this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. 
Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. It seems really clear if you don't read the rest of the Bible. <laughs> seems really clear, right? And most of the New Testament exists because these churches, these early Christians, have sin issues and conflict and stuff that has to get ironed out. So if you read this passage and you just take those verses we read, and if you want to apply it out of the context of the rest of scriptures, you might be one to think one of three things. First, you might get down on yourself, right? You might get down and you think that you are destined for hell because there is sin in your life, therefore you must not really be of God. You must not really be a believer because there's sin that you just can't deal with. So that's one way you might go if you take this and run with it. The second is this. You might look at the sin of others that you know, and you might decide that God has called you to judge their eternal destination, which he hasn't, by the way. Don't fall into that trap. Or third, and this is perhaps the most dangerous one of these, um, you might look at this and you might decide that since you know Jesus, logically, you are incapable of sin. And so everything you do is okay, and Jesus must actually want you to do it because you cannot sin in Jesus Christ, right? A, a whole lot of things have been done in the name of Jesus that weren't really in the name of Jesus in the history of Christianity. A whole lot of damaging and deceptive and cruel things have been done because people get into this mentality, thinking that I know Jesus, therefore what I, must, what I do must be right 100% of the time. I'm flawless, right? What is John really saying in this letter? What is John really saying in context, given the rest of scriptures too? What he's saying is that our spiritual reality and our trajectory changes, our, our core DNA changes when we come to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. What do I mean by that? We are no longer bound to sin like Adam and Eve became bound to sin in the garden. We're not tied up and chained to that sin anymore when Jesus Christ knows us and when we know him. Rather, we are bound to Jesus Christ. We are bound to him. We're bound to the one who overcame sin. And all the benefits of Jesus' life and his ministry um, and his teachings transfer onto us because now Jesus knows he has paid the price for us. We are not bound to the sin, we are bound to Jesus. And in this, we find that we can no longer be okay with the sin in our lives and in this world. We can't be okay with it, as we often are okay with it apart from God. There is a new way of life as adopted sons and daughters of the King Jesus. There's a new way of life. And that way is one where we no longer desire to partner with what is destructful and sinful. We want to partner with what is good and life-giving. And the rest of the scriptures teach us that, yes, it is a struggle, and there will be good days and bad days, and we see it apparent in our lives. If we're honest about our own lives, it's a problem. There's always ways that we don't live up to God's perfect mark. But there's also a lot of grace. So, it doesn't make us fully redeemed or perfect on the spot, but it does change our eternal outlook because God is at work in us and through us through the power of the Holy Spirit. And then let's look at where this chapter started, uh, 1 John chapter 3. It starts this way, see what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. This is the context for what we just read a few minutes ago. 
So the passage here starts not with a condemnation of sinners saying, get out, you're not really a follower of Jesus. That's not what he's saying at all. He is celebrating the love, the reality of Jesus Christ and knowing him and the love that is lavished on us through God's grace. The context matters a lot, which is why it's important to know more than just a verse here and there, right? So this is one example of taking a scripture, twisting it to distract or detract from Christ. Um, this, this would lead us down legalistic paths big time, and we don't want to go there uh, because that's not the path Jesus is leading us down. So let's look at a real-life example now. Example two, um, this is from a church in Iowa that I'm familiar with, real-life story, uh, happened in the last year. So this congregation, in communicating with the bishop of their church body, the bishop quoted Roman, Romans 8, 38, and 39, and this is how it was quoted here. It says, I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how it was quoted. Sounds pretty good, right? There's a couple words missing in there. A couple words missing. And fortunately, this church, their council, their leaders knew their scripture and said, that doesn't sound right. They look it up. And in their reply, they kind of point this out. In their reply to the bishop, they point this out. Um, what was omitted was the word God and in. So on the next slide, you'll see what it should say. Uh, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, you might think that's petty to point out, but I would argue differently. Um, there's some pretty big implications if we take out those two words, and here's what those are. Uh, certain movements in Christianity for years, for centuries, have been trying to separate or distance Jesus from the God of the Old Testament, right? Treating them almost as two different, completely different things, different people, different beings. And by doing so, it's really convenient to have the grace preaching Jesus the Messiah in the New Testament and not have to think about God's judgment and his anger and his wrath, as we see displayed in the Old Testament. Many people like Jesus, a lot less people like God. And so it's really easy for somebody to follow or worship an incomplete image of God rather than Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as revealed in the all of scriptures, not just in a couple books of it. Thinking that way would be inconsistent with pretty much 100% of this book. <laughs> Um, the scriptures point to God as the one that we need to be reconciled to and justified before. They point to God, right? Jesus acts as a mediator. Jesus is worthy to judge. Jesus pays the price for our sin on our behalf. But he does so for the very reason that we need to be reconciled to God the Father. We need to be reconciled. And so by twisting this passage or omitting those two seemingly harmless words, right, we have preached something other than the gospel because it is the love of God displayed in Jesus Christ, not just the love of Jesus detached from God. The gospel of Jesus Christ always has to do with our relationship to God, to the Father, and it has to do with God's love for us and God's desire to see us inherit eternal life and spend eternity with him. That's what the gospel has to do with. And anything less than that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it can easily give someone a false or an incomplete representation of who God is revealed in the scriptures. So if you don't know the scripture passage and you run with that first version, you could very easily be led down that path of detaching Jesus from the God of the Old Testament or in some other crazy ways too. So 
All right, one final example here. Um, this is one that I see quoted a lot in our culture today. I see it quoted very frequently on social media. And it's often quoted by those who tend to adopt more of a social justice or so social gospel-oriented view of God rather than a God justice or righteous justice view of culture. And so often I see the phrase, blessed are the poor. Often I just see that, right? I just see that detached from even the rest of the verse. I see, blessed are the poor, for they shall receive the kingdom of God. I see this in some form, um, and it is almost always linked and attached to some sort of modern justice movement or ideology. And many of those movements can exist just fine without Jesus and the church, which is why it's problematic for us as Christians. So this verse appears in two places in the New Testament. It, uh, both times in what is known as the Beatitudes. We heard the Luke version read here this morning. Matthew includes it in the Sermon on the Mount in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, Luke is a little less specific about the location, so these could be two different sermons given a little bit differently, or it could be two different accounts uh, of the same sermon. It's okay. Both are scripture. Both are here in, today in front of us because, because God wants us to read these um, in the scriptures. So both instances of this idea, is we're going to look at both, and it's important to read these in context as well. Context matters. So this is what Matthew 5 says. Jesus does not say blessed are the poor in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, being poor in spirit is not a reference to physical or worldly wealth, right? Being poor in spirit is not that. But it is a reference to a spiritual reality of emptiness of self, being emptied of self, so that one might be filled with the full presence of God. Jesus is not saying that being poor on this earth in worldly terms will somehow equal an inheritance of the kingdom of God. This idea directly contradicts the other passages about repentance and belief in Jesus Christ, right? So in Luke's verse, in, in 620, uh, when Luke has this, it's, it does say, blessed are the poor. It says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And so if you just look at the Luke version and you take that one verse out of context, you might jump to that conclusion that, yes, Luke is somehow equating, Jesus is somehow equating your wealth here with some sort of eternal implications, right? Uh, but Jesus is not making a sermon here that equates worldly conditions with earthly conditions. In fact, just a few verses later, and we heard it read this morning by Fran in Luke 6.22, Jesus says, blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man, because of Jesus, because of knowing him and following him, right? That doesn't sound like he's talking about money, does it? It doesn't sound like he's talking about wealth. In fact, it makes it clear that he is addressing those people who are seeking and hungering for God in their lives. And in both cases, in Matthew and in Luke, this is also really important, who is Jesus addressing? His disciples. He's either looking at or addressing his disciples as he says these words. He is talking to those who have already left much behind, including wealth, those who have already said, we will empty ourselves of us and we will follow you, our rabbi. That's who Jesus is talking to. So in this example, once again, it is easy to take a little bit out of context. It's easy to twist it in a way that sounds really spiritual and good, just like Satan did with Psalm 91 when Jesus was tempted. But it falls short of Jesus's message here. I would argue this particular verse has led many people down paths uh, that do not lead to Jesus Christ or the love of Christ. They lead to other things. And so again, it is important. Why, why is this important for us? So three little examples 
None of those will make or break the church in a day, uh, but over time they definitely can. Why is it important for us to know these things? Why are we talking about this today? We will not know if we've been led astray from the truth if we don't know what the truth is in the first place, right? What, what is solid? What is truth? And then we look at the world around us and say, what lines up with that and what doesn't? We will not know if we've been led astray from the truth if we don't know the truth in the first place. And we live in a world where it is very hard to know if what we are being told is true, right? Because most of the information we digest, we don't have firsthand experience of what is happening in the world. And so we're being told this or that on TV or on social media or at coffee in the morning. Like, we, we hear a lot of things and we just don't know. We can't know because we weren't there. So it's really hard to know what is true in the world. But you know what's not hard is to pick this up. It's not really that hard to pick up the scriptures, is it? As I said a couple of weeks ago, um, we have it in dozens of English translations. Find one that reads well for you. Uh, we have it in hundreds of languages if you prefer German or some other language to read it in, or Norwegian. You could do that if you wanted to do. But for most of us in the church that don't know the scriptures well, or as well as we could, right, it simply boils down to the fact that we haven't made a, pr a priority in our lives to know them. Listening to Bible teaching is good. Listening to sermons is good. I hope you're listening right now. And reading through the books that talk about biblical topics, that's really good too. But nothing can replace going to the scriptures for yourself and reading them. And there is nothing except our own pride or the lies of the enemy that keeps us from doing that. Let me talk about that. So pride gets in the way of a lot in our lives. Um, I've had people in the church tell me before that they are, they are afraid to read the scriptures because they know it will change them and they don't want to change. Um, man, God has something better than where we are today, right? Let's trust the Lord to do good things in us as we digest and read his word. So our pride gets in the way. Now the scriptures teach that our pride is the root of our sin, right? Our pride is the root of our sin. The enemy wants us to think that either we know enough of the Bible already or that we know better than the Bible. One of those two things. The enemy wants us to think that we know better, we know enough of the Bible, or that we know better than the Bible. And both of those things are lies, and both of those things are very prideful statements. What does the Bible say about pride? Proverbs talks a lot about pride as it relates to us and God. So Proverbs 11.2 says this, When pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 16.5, The Lord detests all the proud of hearts, be sure of this, they will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. Pride isn't healthy for us, friends. Paul writes about it too, Romans 12, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each one of you. So if you think that you know better than the scriptures, you are thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, right? And then again, Romans 12, 16, Paul writes, live in harmony with one another, do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Pride gets in the way not just of what we read and our reading of the scriptures, it also gets in the way of how we treat other people, doesn't it? And then finally in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul writes this, and you may have heard this one before, love is patient, love is kind. It does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud. All of this is to say, if it is your pride that is keeping you from digging into God's riches and his truth and his wisdom, I want to tell you that's not God's plan for your life. That's not God's best for you. God's will for you, God's plans for you are so much better than living in blindness or ignorance of his truth. They're so much better.
God desires to know you and to be known by you. God desires to pour his grace, his truth, and his wisdom into you through the word of God. And so I ask you, would you lay down your own desires and your own understanding so that you could better know the way, the truth, and the life that is Jesus Christ? Are you willing to do that? Would you give up some of your time so that you could know the one who made time and the one who wants to keep you eternally with him for all of time? As we consider these things individually, we should also consider them as a church, right? The series is the resurrected church. The body of Christ is us together. So I would ask this, is there any bit of pride in us as Emmanuel Lutheran Church? Is there any bit of pride in us that might cause us to drift away from God's word or take us in a direction that is inconsistent with God's truth? Is there any way that we've believed a twisted or a skewed notion about God rather than the truth of God? Is there anything that we are more proud of than Jesus? Are we more proud of a heritage or a program or a ministry or longevity? Are we more proud of a building than we are of Jesus Christ? If the answer to that is yes in any way, Lord, help us to repent. Because, Lord, you have the words of eternal life. You are the way, the truth, and the life. Friends, the resurrected church is one that is planted firmly on God's word as the kids reminded us of just a little bit ago. This is the air that we want to breathe. Breathe it in, breathe it out. It's the soil that we want to grow deep roots in. I think an agricultural community can understand that metaphor, right? This is the rich soil, friends. This is the rich soil to put your roots in. And it's not for the sake of idolizing the words on the page or the book or the paper, but for the sake of knowing the author of those words and for the word that became flesh, who is Jesus Christ. It is through these pages that the Holy Spirit works to bring alive the epic story of God's creation, our rebellion, and his great plan to save us and restore us to his love and grace through Jesus Christ. It's through these pages that we learn truth. We are able to better discern what is true in the world around us because our foundation is one that is truth and that cannot be swayed. And it is these pages, through these pages, that we discover the need that we have for Jesus Christ daily, every moment. And it's also where we discover the answer to our need, Jesus Christ. Not as just a past event that happened 2,000 years ago, but as an ongoing reality and an eternal truth. So friends, let's be a resurrected church. Let's lean into the life that God gives us through his word, through the power of salvation, through the ongoing empowering of the Holy Spirit. I want us to thrive in our understanding of God's word. Because if we do that, his word, his love, his grace, it's all going to come alive for us. And we'll be able to look back a few years from now or a decade from now and say, wow, how much more do we know God's truth and love it? How much more do we understand God's love for us and the deep riches that it is to know him? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. Um, As we often do here, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the many ways, Lord, um, that you have made it so easy for us to pick up your word. And Lord, whatever those obstacles are in our lives that are keeping us from doing it, whether it's our own pride, our own schedules, whatever that is, Lord, man, would you help us by your grace, Lord, would you take those obstacles away? Help us to be people who love your word and who want to know it more. Help us to be a church that loves your word, that preaches your word, and that strives to know it more, no matter what age we are, no matter what life circumstances we are in, no matter what sin still exists in our lives, Lord. Give us a hunger for your word. Give us a hunger that can only be satisfied through knowing you more. And we pray, Lord, that when we don't feel like doing that, you would change something in our hearts and in our minds through the work of your Holy Spirit. Help us to humbly follow you and to absorb you and digest you and all that you have for us in your word in the coming days. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.